0: Welcome everyone, I'm Andrew Duckworth and I'd like to thank you for joining us for our sixth and final instalment from our second podcast series on the COVID-19 pandemic entitled COVID-19, the new normal and how to get there. As some nations are just sadly going through the peak of the pandemic, others are trying to determine the best way forward as we move out of lockdown. However, without doubt, the COVID-19 pandemic continues to weigh heavily over all of our healthcare systems across the world. As you know, through this second series of podcasts, we hope to have reflected on what has happened so far as a consequence of the pandemic for us in orthopaedic and trauma surgery, as well as on our healthcare as a whole. We've heard from a range of colleagues and specialties on how we may try and move forward as we start to consider restarting or increasing our orthopaedic services around the country. There continue to be many questions and unknowns regarding our hospital capacities, patient and staff safety, and what the state of research is now and in the future. We also feel it's an opportunity, as we will today, to discuss the current state of training and how we may consider returning to some form of normality with regards this. So today I have the pleasure of being joined by the Chair of the Scottish Committee for Orthopaedics and Trauma, Mr Alastair Murray, who I know will be able to give us an exceptional overview and insight into the effects of the pandemic so far, including on his specialty paediatrics, as well as the hurdles we are going to face in our attempts to return to some form of normality, particularly in terms of training. Many thanks Al for joining us today, we really appreciate your time.
1: You're very welcome. So, Al, if we could
0: start off, you know, a lot's happened over the past couple of months. Uh, it's almost three months now since our first uh, death from the COVID-19 pandemic in the UK. And a lot continues to develop and change. Uh, and as we have for all of our guests so far in this series, I wanted to start off by asking you what's been your experience of the pandemic over the past few months and what insights you can give us in your role as chair of the Scott committee.
1: Okay, well, thanks very much, Andrew. And, uh, thank you for inviting me to contribute today. Uh, yes, uh, I think you know, we're have a moment to, to, to look back over what's been quite an extraordinary three months uh, for us all. And from my perspective as, as Chair of Scott, um, the, there has been uh, really quite a, an enormous amount of learning um, to, to gain from this. Now, overall, from the beginning, from mid-March, there was, uh, what I saw was a very impressive, in many cases, clinician-led response from trauma and orthopaedics in Scotland. seemed to be quite a swift recognition in those days of the need for trauma orthopedics to play our part in preparing our hospitals to cope and the TNO teams were very proactive in reorganizing swiftly um, recognizing the need to vacate elective theatres and clinical areas for our our colleagues in the acute specialties who were going to bear the brunt of uh, this respiratory illness. Mm. I think we anticipated significant staff absence and trauma and orthopaedics were proactive in offering their staff for redeployment and for also shoring up our services to ensure that we could continue to deliver a robust trauma provision. In many cases, that involved combining rotors or drafting consultants in to roles they hadn't perhaps done for a while. In some cases, there was a centralization of trauma services, and um, all of which seemed to be um, met with a tremendous amount of acceptance and support from the trauma community uh, across scotland uh, as we now know we saw a drop of trauma activity in scotland to around 74 75 of normal about the scottish peak which occurred over the easter weekend mm. for COVID. but things have now fairly rapidly returned to near normal levels for trauma uh, which is putting quite a, a pressure on our new way of functioning uh, with the limitations we face
0: yeah
1: so I took over as chair of SCOTS, which, uh, as you introduced, is our Scottish Committee for Orthopaedics and Trauma, in early February. Which, in reflection, was quite a time to take over. Indeed. And uh, now seems like quite a long time ago in a different era. Yeah. Uh, Scott exists. I see it as a to really to ensure that trauma orthopaedics around Scotland works together as much as possible, yeah. sharing good practice and offering mutual support. Yeah. And of course, this purpose, this purpose has, has never been more relevant than in the last few months. Yeah,
0: absolutely, Al. Al, can I ask you just in your role as Scott, obviously you've and we've talked about it before in our podcast, Obviously, trying to issue guidance to the the community, how how hard has that been? Because obviously, we've said through our podcast, there's there's the guidance almost everywhere now. Every mm-hmm. institution's providing their own guidance. How do you sort of assimilate that together so that you know it's it's digestible for the, for our members?
1: Yeah, I think I agree, Andrew. I think I think there was uh, clearly a very well-intentioned desire for many bodies to produce guidance as we were confronting a, a completely new situation to us all, and and there was very much a, a, an overload in the early days of guidance emerging from various areas, mm. often some of it being contradictory, and it was a huge challenge to try and assimilate that for uh, for our colleagues across the country. Yeah. We did uh, as a group. Focus early on our communication, and uh, we tried to ensure that we were sending out regular communications to our membership um, to assimilate the evidence that we had. Yeah. We also created a, on our Scott website a depository for where other members were identifying evidence that was relevant, or other resources such as how we were adapting and setting up minor injuries units and what the current evidence for for those were. And I think, and I would like. I think at least that uh, that was found to be helpful.
0: Absolutely. We also
1: opened a WhatsApp group for trauma leads, or sorry, clinical leads and training leads across the country. And and that was really quite instructive in the early days. It was very active. And there was an awful lot of mutual sharing of evidence. When you've got 20 plus people spending their time looking for the latest evidence, you rapidly can accumulate uh, a consensus on what is uh, emerging. And I think that, I hope as well, was a useful Resource. Yeah. What uh, it also proved to be, I think, was uh, an excellent way of bringing us together more as a team across Scotland. And it was pleasing to see that platform also being used for a bit of mutual support mm. when uh, pressures were building on individuals in some units, inevitably, as, as we went through some difficult times. Yeah, no, so absolutely. Yeah. it's been genuinely humbling and gratifying to, to see that um, level of peer support and Scottish orthopedics.
0: Yeah, I I agree, and I think that's been a common theme we've heard throughout all the podcasts. Is the way that everybody has sort of pulled together to try and support each other, and uh, often doing day to day day to day jobs. Um, so I think if we could move on now to to uh, so, sort of your subspecialty uh, out of paediatric orthopaedics, which I, we haven't really considered enough in our in our podcast series so far. What could you give sort of give a summary for our listeners? What has happened in your experience with regards to the trauma elective services for kids since COVID nineteen?
1: Sure. Well, I, there are many similarities with what happened in, in adult orthopaedics and and of course there was a, a, an almost complete cessation of, of elective paediatric orthopaedic activity from, from mid to end of March this year. The um, certain essential services viewed as essential such as screening for infant hip dysplasia, club fit management, has on the whole continued largely undisturbed through this period, which is pleasing to see. Mm. Um, trauma levels... Drop down as they did for adult trauma, and my observation would be that they perhaps, uh, as yet, have not quite come up uh, in the same way as adult trauma. This is this time of year is usually when we're at our busiest for pediatric trauma. Sure. And with lockdown and, and school closure, uh, my observation would be that it's not yet returned to normal levels. Right.
0: In terms of. You know, obviously the one thing that was highlighted as we went into lockdown was obviously this concern about, non-extending is has is that, is that unfortunately come to light at all or
1: what's been the experience of the community with regards to that? Well, that is a genuine concern and there was uh, a bit of correspondence on that early on. Naturally, we're anxious when that interface between us and our, and our patients and their families is, is interrupted and we, we move to times of, of loss of contact. Um, that concern, I think, has been reported as, as being a feature, of course. Society's gone through significant convulsions and is under duress. And we know that uh, when families are facing uh, challenges, and uh, unfortunately, the observation would be that there has been a slight increase in, in that, both neglect, which is more common, mm-hmm. and non-accidental injury. Right. I think that is a concern for our, our paediatric orthopedic community and our colleagues in paediatric medicine and social work on how we address that Mm. because certainly looking ahead of course as we are with adult services we're we're trying to move to platforms that allow consultation with minimal patient attendance including video and phone consultation that works well in many cases but it does does put that barrier between us and our patients which is a concern yeah, so that, so that the remote
0: sort of uh, clinics, have they have been working in paediatrics, have they? Have they they've been relatively effective?
1: They have, they have. And uh, I mean, my own experience is that it has worked for a select uh, number of patients and uh, it's created some amusing uh, occasions where parents are chasing their children around the living room with their phone to try and show me their concern. But in, on the whole, I think it is useful. And I find the, the video format, I think, does add something that a phone conversation does not. Definitely. I think one of the things that will come, which is a benefit, is that it will allow us to respond more swiftly on the whole Mm -hmm. to referrals. And we can phone or video contact our patients really very quickly after receipt of a referral. I think we might be in a better position to allay some of the anxieties um, and offer a good service. But there will be an undoubted need for continued face-to-face and physical examination of many of our patients as we go forward.
0: Of course, of course. And what in terms of um, uh, the paediatric care or planned activity, uh, what's happened to that?
1: So uh, again, as, as many people will be familiar, the anything deemed non-urgent had to be postponed. Mm. Um, time-dependent uh, surgery, such as hip dysplasia and so on, has continued. I think one particular group of patients um, who have been disadvantaged have been our patients with motor disorder and neurological conditions. Mm. These children and young adults are particularly vulnerable of course to the effects of coronavirus and quite rightly have been shielded um, but they've lost their access to physiotherapy and other support services and and we do wonder how things will go uh, with them mm. as we move forward and how we can offer them a service while still protecting them from the effects of coronavirus. That's
0: interesting, Alan, because that brings us on to a, what I do want to ask you. I've asked before more from an adult point of view. And Do you ever feel that if the patient and parent perspective has changed at all, do you think we're going to see in, in paediatrics some parents, let's say, saying, I, I don't want to risk coming into hospital? Do you think that, Has that happened at all yet, or do you think that will happen?
1: Oh, well, it's already happened. Um, yeah. you know, as I'm sure you have in your own centre, Andrew, we've been phoning patients to inquire if they're willing to come for any kind of consultation, mm-hmm. um, and many have replied that they don't feel uh, safe enough to do so at the moment. So yeah. that that will continue, and and you can imagine that uh, if your child is very vulnerable, you'll not be willing to risk that. So we'll have to work out ways of of offering them some input uh, and minimising the interaction. Now, one way of doing that would be to consider if you know clinicians can join a, a video consultation, perhaps with a physiotherapist with the patient demonstrating their concerns or carrying out an examination at home for yeah. that type of move, I think, uh, maybe what we'll have to look at.
0: It's very difficult though, isn't it? Because, uh, again, as we've discussed before, trying to quantify risk in, in, in terms of COVID is quite difficult, isn't it? And as you say, there are many patients in, in, in paediatrics who are, have got risk factors and are vulnerable. And it's going to be quite hard, that not it, in terms of being
1: able to actually quantify risk for parents? It's very difficult. Uh, because, of course, the majority of the data exists in the older age groups. And just how we um, are able to give accurate information about the risks that their children and young adults would face um, is very challenging. The papers mm. that have come out so far don't really help us with that. No. The observation would be that those um, young people who have sadly succumbed to serious effects or, or died from, um, from COVID-19 have been those with significant associated comorbidities and disabilities. Absolutely. Absolutely, Al, no,
0: I agree and so if we if we sort of move on from, from paediatrics and I'll move on to training which I know a lot of our listeners will be very interested to hear your thoughts. What do you feel has been so far your perception, you know, you have a strong interest in training, has been the impact and
1: consequences so far? Um, well, I think uh, The first thing I'd like to say is that my observation for how trainees of of all levels have responded to the challenges we've put to them over the last three months is absolutely commendable. As with the consultant body, the the trainees have stepped up and have handled redeployment in some cases, dramatic changes to their working practices, Mm -hmm. um, a cessation of rotation, of course, staying where they were. Uh, and of course, other, other fairly dramatic impacts, such as cancellation of exams and assessments mm. and concerns about their progress. Yeah. Uh, and to date, as I said, their response has been admirable. Yeah, I agree. They, you know, we face a, a number of challenges for trainees. But again, I think we have seen a good response from the statutory training bodies, such as uh, Health Education England and, and Scotland's NES, and the colleges to Mm -hmm. try and allow as best we can trainees to continue to progress through training um, with several derogations for what's been happening over the last few months. So I think in terms of people progressing, there will be an impact on some which is unavoidable and there will be an inevitable requirement for some extended training time. But for many, there won't be. Um, I think what is also clear is that this problem is clearly not going to be resolved now yeah. and the impact on training will be for uh, several years, I think. Yeah. Whilst we try and help trainees on a bespoke basis compensate for what they may have missed or lost in the last yeah. three months.
0: That's interesting because I, I think that's very much the impression I have got. And just, just to reiterate that it it will be very much a trainee by trainee basis.
1: Yes, it will. And, and I think, you know, this is where, Competency-based training has now, uh, you know, found its found its application par excellence, and we absolutely have to look at uh, the trainees individual uh, as individuals in terms of what they've done, and what their capabilities are, and what their needs are. And you know, you will see, I think, quite a variance between how individual trainees progress through their programs. Yeah, and I hope that trainees will see any requirements for more training time is a constructive process Mm -hmm. you know i remember as a trainee and as a tpd there was always an anxiety about being seen to require more time but i think you know this this will change that culture i hope Mm. yeah
0: that's interesting because like you say uh, you think of you know coming through these things it's often often difficult times the ways you can move forward to make training that you just described a positive Aspect rather than seen as a negative, really, in many ways, and actually, you know, a new normal in a good way, shall we say?
1: Well, I would agree, and you know, we've seen uh, some some tremendous developments in terms of you uh, know, way teaching programs have yep. moved very rapidly to uh, online formats and webinar formats, which have now gained universal acceptance. Yeah, and will undoubtedly make access to to training better for trainees spread across the country. Definitely, and. Um, I think also our trainees are going to be well-placed to help us as trainers work out how we can help them access skills training, for yeah. example. Yeah. Now there will be a lack of routine elective training opportunity for a while to come yet, and we need to think how we can help trainees compensate for that.
0: Definitely, definitely
1: in terms of in terms of not talking about
0: specific years or anything like that but what have you found towards the end of your training it's probably going to impact on you in some ways more if you're scrambling for time and things like that but what's your feel about that in terms of if you've got to get certain courses or things done for the end of the training the the more training years you've got
1: the more time you have to make it up really don't you well yes you do and um, obviously if, if you're at a deadline and your cct is due this summer and you're lacking and uh, really the you know the and, trauma and orthopedics the exam, then clearly you need more time.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: There I think you're right, and that clearly there'll be an anxiety when you're approaching CCT or that senior level. But it was an interesting point raised by a trainee the other night on a on a call that in some ways the, the sort of ST34 level have their own concerns because mm. they foresee that more senior trainees will be getting the priority for any training opportunity and and there'll be a focus on them. And they I think also foresee that Certainly operative opportunities may may have two consultants operating because yes. we'll as consultants be seeking experience. Of course. And then there'll be senior trainees and they may they may find themselves quite far down the picking order. So we need to be to be aware of that.
0: Yeah. And to share
1: out these training opportunities as appropriate.
0: Absolutely. No, I agree, Al. So if we just just to sort of finish up, Al, what do you feel, you know, in, in terms of both your role as a clinician and in the training and the and as the chair of Scott? road ahead what do you think the recovery is going to look like what do you potentially i know it's difficult but what sort of timeline do you think it will be and do you have a what our new normal
1: may look like it's quite a challenge isn't it it is i think you know that you can there's a lot of a lot of people thinking about what this might look like and of course nobody i think could hand on heart predict with any certainty yeah undoubtedly though we'll be living with Coronavirus for a while, for certainly throughout this year, and and I think the natural anxiety at government and health board level about the possibility of further surges, perhaps in the autumn, will limit opportunities for for us. Mm. This is, there's a phased response which many people will now recognise of gently reintroducing services. But um, I think in orthopedics in particular, we have to be very aware that we must advocate for our patients. Who have genuinely urgent conditions and that they're not left out of considerations where often cancer and other uh, conditions in other specialties seem to be gaining priority. So I think there'll be a resumption, I would hope and like to see, of urgent non-trauma type operating activity as we progress into the summer. Sure. Um, but I think the reality is that the more routine surgery, and mm-hmm. certainly any significant volume of more routine elective surgery will be well into the autumn, but it may be beyond that, I fear, into into next year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the We need to be very much part of the discussions on developing these green pathways, so-called, and making sure that we have designed our pathways to be as safe as they possibly can, because I think confidence in patients, as we alluded to earlier in the pediatric population, the same is true in adults. We, patients need to have confidence that we're doing yeah. everything we possibly can to make them safe. Or, or they will not, they will be genuinely and understandably reluctant, I think, to have treatment that they actually might be very much in their interests to have. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, you know, certainly in the operative, in terms of elective operating, there's a long road ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, outpatients I'm more optimistic about, and much work had been done in Scotland before COVID to modernise our outpatient processes with active vetting, patient-initiated returns, remote consulting, and and... We're really just accelerating those processes now. So I would feel that actually the patient's ability to access us for consultation and for information, I think, will come back and be restored fairly quickly and actually will be in a better place than it was pre-COVID fairly soon. The final part is we need to obviously make sure that we are supporting trauma because trauma activity is now returning to normal, as I'm sure you've seen in your practice, Andrew, and we are limited in terms of the capacity we have with features, inpatient space, and other restrictions.
0: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think that's a bit been our, our thought series. And I think generally it's interesting how you've um, looked ahead there. And I think that's very much been the consistent, whether we've been speaking to orthopedic surgeons or an ethist or intensivist, I think the general feel is there is a, a long road ahead, but there is some positivity there and, and things that we can really focus on and, and move forward with. I think that's all we have time for, but thank you so much for your excellent overview and insight today. It's been really informative. Not at
1: all, thank you very much uh, for inviting me to speak and uh, good luck to you in uh, restoring your own services and I'm looking forward to, to hearing how you get on.
0: Absolutely, Al. And finally, as ever, uh, we'd like to thank and acknowledge our many colleagues around the UK and across the world for their tireless ongoing efforts in the delivery of care to our patients during the pandemic. We at The Journal thank you. Stay safe and well and thanks for listening.